0: Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone fascinated with how, just how, writers do their jobs. Or don't do their jobs, as the case may be. Um, today's episode is me chatting to uh, a debut author, um, Ashley hickson uh who wrote a uh, I guess like literary fiction uh, is the genre literary g- general fiction. Um, called the Three Ninety Two, which is all set on a single hackney bus, and it's told through the perspectives of various different characters on that bus. Um, and well, we get into it. We we'll, we we chat about what it's about in the episode. But he came around my house. Uh, he was someone who'd been recommended to me and he lives nearby. So he popped his book through my letterbox and then a couple of weeks later came round and we had a chat. And, um, i i know it's kind of irrelevant to the uh, literary credentials of someone to say that they're a lovely person being a really lovely guy Isn't, that's not me sort of damning with faint praise i always sort of worry especially you know when i'm talking especially when i'm talking about female authors uh, occasionally it's been pointed out to me that if you go oh this is what a lovely person they are or how nice they are it sounds a little bit like you're it just can sound a little bit condescending right like I mean, there's there's different... I mean, I guess Lovely is sometimes getting a bit more into that territory than... I don't know, is it? I don't know. I'm getting sidetracked here. I, I'd stay away... I mean, I would stay away from Bubbly. Always, right? That always sounds incredibly patronising. I I like to think that call it, that saying that someone... Look, it's, I think it's a... I mean, I really, really enjoyed chatting with him. I really enjoyed getting down into... You know what he was thinking about when he wrote the book—the structure, the characters, the setting—which is really important to him in this. He has some great stuff um, to say on his target audience, who were really clear, and some of the notes he wrote to himself, some kind of north stars that he was aiming for as he wrote the book and the process he went through, and getting an agent and a publisher, and all that. Uh, We go into that in quite a bit of um detail and I think that's really really interesting but it's just it's not it is nice to me right to when I chat to authors and they're and they're just nice people and I get on with them right it's that I'm glad as someone who's you know quite anxious uh wants to be liked and accepted I would find it very difficult to do one of these interviews with someone who was being sort of um frosty with me I, I, In fact, often in interviews where someone has been perfectly nice, I've looked back at it later and gone, oh my gosh, they hated me. In fact, not even later. Like when the interview ends, I think... In fact, during the interview, I'm often thinking, this person hates me. I'm such a douchebag. That's just part of... I mean, it, it may well be accurate in some cases, but I, I think for the most part it's not. That's just a life in my head um before we jump into this episode and i'll put a link to um, ashley's book the 392 in the show notes so if you want to order it and support him you can do um just to say before we start uh another way you can support the show is to buy my books uh the ice house is out now the honors my first novel is out uh the honors and the ice house are the second uh, the first and second book in a trilogy Um, I think you'll really enjoy them but I'm not going to kind of go into another pitch about them because I've talked about them a lot on the show Um, there's actually four episodes I did about the honors that you can listen to Um, talk about different aspects of how I did it and some of the craft so they're they're there if you want to listen to them Um, but just thanks to everyone who's bought a copy a few listeners have been getting in touch saying hey Tim like oh how's the ice house been doing in its first like two and a half weeks which is at the time of recording how long it's been out Uh, how's it doing how the sales going because I've been talking a lot of time about how we could get it into the bestseller lists if a lot of people pre-ordered it has not made the UK bestseller lists in its first week Uh, I actually thought it was worth if I was going to address this rather than just clogging up someone else's uh, episode with me talking about my own work um, and maybe it being tucked away in an episode where not everyone would hear it um i've done a blog post on my website timclairpoet.co.uk. you can either go onto the website and click the blogs Uh, i think if you just scroll down you find them at the bottom or in the show notes to this episode i'll put a link i've done a it's called the blog post is called the first three weeks through the first three weeks in the life of a book and i just kind of crunch the numbers i've been completely transparent i talk about how many sales that we know of have gone through i talk about how much i got for my advance uh how much of that doesn't reach me because of agent fees and tax and stuff uh how much time that spread out and things like working out and an advance and just i've tried to be as straightforward as i can about it um doesn't come naturally to me uh there's a kind of very uh british squeamishness about talking about money uh, which I suspect is a hangover from the class system, right? It's it's what allows there to be huge inequality in a society, right? You make it so that people don't feel comfortable chatting about money, don't feel comfortable chatting about salary. You make it so it's a, it's it's vulgar to discuss how much you're earning. I'm not suggesting it's a conspiracy, but I think if it serves anyone's interest, trends like that those are not the interests of the workers it tends to be the interests of the people who have quite a lot of the money this is i mean that's my way of framing what i'm doing not as just a, an appeal for you to buy my book but as a, um, a as a as a brave and frankly liberating piece of agitprop uh it's not it it, i'm just saying that that's what i imagine that the background is to that kind of anxiety um but i hope that you find it interesting uh and you know i'm just reaching out to people who listen to the show uh to say you know if you can help me by talking about my work online by reviewing it on amazon and and by buying it as well all of those things help me hugely. Uh, and, you know, my fate is kind of in your hands now. So if you'd like to do that and support the show, I'd really appreciate it. Or you can just go on my coffee page, that's uh, ko fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. And there you can just drop a few um, beans into the grinder for all Timmy C. And I use that to do stuff like pay my uh, SoundCloud subscription which has just come round and my website subscription which again has just come round so um, that's all very appreciated folks okay i am done i'm gonna hand you over to me asking my first question to ashley uh he, he was just really uh accommodating and thoughtful and you're gonna hear all that i don't have to add that gloss but i hope you enjoy it here you go what's the first story you can remember
1: telling um well I mean I always find questions about my reading habits and reading routines when I was younger quite difficult to answer simply because my family weren't big readers um and I think any sort of reading material came from school from primary school and and, and you know key stage 1 and key stage 2 texts so I mean my responses to the very hungry caterpillar for, for instance was probably one of my was probably one of my uh favourite books, are you going to get a copy out? Yeah, I'm no, just was- <laughs> saying I've got it behind me, I've
0: been um, uh, I've, yeah, it's, it's, it's on these shelves behind me, I, oh. I, I know you know what
1: it... Yeah, I mean it's such a fantastic illustration um, on the front cover, but yeah, I mean I remember responding to that book with a short story of my own um, about a millipede and um, drawing an illustration which sort of resembled a caterpillar to be honest, yeah. uh, and I remember that being quite significant, but I've always wanted to tell stories um And I think from a very early age, I wouldn't say as early as that early at primary school, but a bit later on, perhaps, you know, writing um, poems and short stories on on Word and changing the fonts and adding up pictures and then showing my teacher in a very delighted fashion. So yeah, I mean, storytelling has been, you know, innately part of my life, even though I wasn't a massive reader at that age. And that's something which I'll probably talk about later, but I mean, I didn't read it very much up until um, probably secondary school, actually. So,
0: what were you? What were you into? What were you? What were you doing with that type? I mean, the same is. I definitely went through a reluctant reader stage. I think, like when I, maybe from like twelve, to sort of mid-teens, I don't think I read. I, th- I mean, I read text or stuff that was given to me in class, but I didn't read f- for pleasure ever. Um, but what, what? What were you? What? What were the? What was the stuff that you were like passionate about as a kid?
1: yeah I mean I think actually quite similar in our in our reading habits, but i mean football was my life um you know I wanted to be a footballer I played football until until the sun went down in my in my uh sort of play park in my flats in hackney football wasn't was was a huge part of my life, and uh I wanted to be involved in it um and yeah writing obviously i said i wrote from a very early age, but that that didn't come until much later which I took it really seriously. And I think that was coincided with my my joy of reading, which came a lot later. Um, so I started reading football autobiographies at the beginning of secondary school. Um, I remember being a huge Man United fan, reading Roy Keane and Lee Sharp and um, Rio Ferdinand's autobiography and thinking, oh, wow, combining football and writing. This is so cool. And I understand the words. I understand what's going on. And there's action, especially in Roy Keane's autobiography, in which he like talks about you know ending a Man City player's career by kicking him in the knee and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, my God, I, just, I didn't think this could happen. So it started off with football geographies, um, which amalgamated the two favorite things at the time. And then I would suppose I suppose I sort of started enjoying literary fiction. You're very similar to you. It's probably about 15, 16, um, in which, yeah. Can you?
0: Right. So I'm always I always get like really like football is like one of those topics. Like even if I try and make an, an analogy <laughs> relating to football, I start to get like stammery and nervous because it's something that has been like adjacent to my life. Like my dad is like a, um, my dad was always like watching football, really big Southampton fan. So I, you know, I've been to, I went to see games with him. um, And I grew up in a, around the boys for whom, like I grew up in Bristol. So like loads of Bristol city fans. I grew up surrounded by people who are really into football and I always felt slightly outside of it. And I was wondering if you could explain to me, I'm thinking like, what's it? What It's going to sound like a dumb question. Like, <laughs> what is the appeal of football? Like, I suppose it must be obvious to you, but is there any way you can explain like the joy of it to someone who is... Non, I'm not, no judgement Just like
1: Has no, no, as yeah. always been outside of it I'll give it a good go Because as a Man United fan We are having perhaps The worst season I have ever it's experienced It's been a weird
0: week For football it right It's been
1: incredibly weird I mean Two amazing Champions League games And then Man City Winning the league And of course Yeah it's been absolutely crazy I think actually This week epitomises all that is good with football, um, you know, the sort of underdog in being Liverpool, I suppose an underdog of sorts, uh, but the underdog Liverpool uh, overcoming the mighty Barcelona um, when being 3-0 down. So, I mean, it's that sort of, yeah, the, in that in that sort of anecdote, you know, that that um, comeback story is, is perfect to describe um, how amazing football is. But I think growing up for me, football was a way which all our friends and we, could, we just bonded in this melting pot of you know, Hackney, as I talked about this borough, which was Turkish, it was black, it was white, and football brought us all together. We'd play, as I said, until the sun went down, and yes, there would be arguments, but by, by the next day, and as always the case, as usually the case with boys, you know, it was all forgotten, and we'll just play another game of football. Um, and you know, even if you scraped your scraped your knees or you know, scraped your elbows or whatever, you just got on with it. And I think it taught us a lot about what it means to to be a, a, a young man um, at that age. So yeah, I mean, for me, football is all about. It's, it's extremes it's absolute joy and it's just you know just i can't i can't even describe what the, what the pain i feel is a my United fan at the moment but yeah it's just um the actual it's always extremes of always working with and it
0: seems like there's like i'm guessing like there's a. it feels like a the box set that never ends right like Absolutely, it's like yeah. it's like if game of thrones like went on forever yes. but you also could look back 50 years and see what had been happening up until then and
1: there could still be surprises every week. There could still be, like, total upsets. Absolutely, yeah. Um I mean, the FA Cup is known for upsets, and that's mentioned in the 392. And actually, my agent told me off two or three times about saying, too many of the characters like football. In fact, we got rid of a character who was a football referee, which is something that I used to do. Um So I had to be very careful about, like, not making it a book about football, even though football is, is referenced quite a few times. Um My agent was like, yeah. We need to try and widen the appeal a little bit. Uh, Yeah.
0: (laughs) But I can see, as soon as you start talking about football as this place, and I I am, like, I'm finding a way in here, but, like, (laughs) I'm going to say this as, like, a you know, someone who grew grew up a a kind of nerd with glasses, like, like fat, slow, afraid of the ball coming towards my face. So football was always a place where I felt, crap and useless which is like such an awful oh, yeah. I'm not I'm not by the way I'm not saying I I'm not I'm not trying to set up kind of like but barriers between us or anything <laughs> yeah I know and now now I'm incredible yeah. but but I can really understand when you talk about it being a place where you can as boys just like do an activity together and spend time where you've got kind of like company without intimacy Mm. um, and where you've got like a shared vocabulary that speaks to me about every like nerd thing I've liked every like game or like war game or playing Dungeons and Dragons or whatever it's just a very um, it's like a just like this lingua franca, uh, franca where you can all you can all sort of talk, and I think that I can really understand that. And and the narrative of it as well, I can really understand as well. The idea that you've got something where you can bump into someone else who supports the same team on the other side of the world, and potentially, or someone who doesn't, right? Absolutely. And potentially have a conversation starter. And that is something that can link you. It's like when I went to Beijing and I was able to talk to a bunch of kids to, seven-year-old kids through a translator about pokemon yes and immediately like all the barriers went down and we could just have a chat about what our favorite pokemon is i guess it's like that
1: right yeah absolutely yeah so you know the the cliche is it's a universal language football um and i think yes absolutely as i said it brought different communities of my very small area all together um and you didn't need to speak the same language necessarily or I like the idea yeah, that there wasn't that intimacy, but there was in many ways of forging those friendships that perhaps wouldn't have been forged without you know the love of the game. So um, yeah, no, absolutely, I completely concur. And
0: actually, like I'm not I I want to just cover a little bit more time before we get into it, mm-hmm. but um, it, it, in a way, like you know, like uh, you know, public transport and like a bus is, is it... like another like communal space, and community spaces are definitely things that feel like they're on the retreat at the moment they're being shrunk and there's actually precious few places like neutral places that you can kind of come together especially when there's not enough room for you all to fit in like when people don't have huge front rooms right and you've got a place where you can go that's kind of yours for that time territory i suppose the other place is public transport which is why you know when people complain about teenagers playing their like music loud on a bus Part of that is territorial, but you can understand <laughs> why, right? Absolutely. Because it's like one of yeah. their only specs So, but before I get there, the re- I'd really like you said that there's like this shift where you start reading fiction. You said literary fiction around fifteen or sixteen. Mm. What changes then that gets you start started? Because that feels to me like a that moment where you start reading a reading a book. That feels like some, something's changed and once you're doing it yeah of course the flywheel's moving mm, but mm. what
1: what made you make that step do you think? Um, Andrew Cohen um, in the previous podcast he mentioned about having a sort of influential figure um, who gets you writing um, and I believe my influential figure who got me reading was my English teacher um, which is unsurprising um, in many ways um, he too went to UEA um, and um was a writer himself as well as being an English teacher in North London. And I remember spotting his book in a sort of secondhand bookstore bookstore in uh, Ealing, West London. and he had a very distinctive name um, and I, it had to be him. so i um I bought the book. It was very cheap. <laughs> and i um I went back to school Monday, and I said, Sir, sir, look, it is you. it is you. And he's very sheepish about it um and he sort of just sort of nodded quietly and sort of ushered me away um but just the fact that he had published and i, I read it and it's, it's a fantastic book um it's, it's called skepticism incorporated by beau fowler and it was it's told from the perspective of a talking shopping trolley nice and I, I read it and i thought this is fantastic and i was like why are you not bigger than just an english teacher why are you getting abused from us you know <laughs> um why are you not like doing book tours or doing talks or not on telly um, I couldn't believe that he'd written this really cool book and was just in front of us and that that was sort of inspiring in many ways that actually an English teacher also had written a book and I I, I thought you know I want to read more I want to write more I want to be like Mr Fowler um, so I think it started from there also I knew I was going to I went to an all boys Catholic secondary school and I knew I was going to a mixed sixth form and I really wanted to impress girls by you know, sort of saying, oh, I've read this. Oh, I've read Catcher in the Rye. Uh. Oh, I've read McEwen. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, decided to read quite a lot. The summer before, sort of the GCSE results, um, I read a lot. Um, and, yeah, just to impress girls. So that when I got to sixth form and book, I could go to book club and know know what they're talking about and get some numbers. Um, so, yeah, it was Mr. Fowler, but also going to sixth form, make sixth form, trying to impress. I think that was a sort of a key period so for w- me. But I wish I did it earlier. I wish I was a better reader earlier. I was.
0: Why? What do What do you think you... What do you perceive that you lost by not reading earlier? Do you think you would have been ready for some of those
1: books earlier? or? Mm, yeah, good question. But I always feel like I'm playing catch-up. Even now, I feel like I'm playing catch-up. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm. you know, I'm doing a PhD at UEA now, which is... I mean, <laughs> I feel pretty privileged about it, but I feel like if i don't know every book because some people are talking about it, so, oh, i need to go write that down or i need to read that because i feel like i need to know i need to know um a bit more um so, so yeah. you 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 have a sense like of the what was in your what was in your your like
0: teenage canon that you felt like oh, i'll read these these are going to be good books to know because it's interesting to me how many people i speak to who as a teenager made like a a conscious decision i was talking to one guy who like sat down and read war war and peace at at 11 because he was just like oh this is like an important book that i need to have read it's it's funny how teenagers can be quite that literal that they'll just go all all right then i'm going to sit down and do this what can you remember some of the books that you were sitting down to go right this is what i'm going to be reading this summer
1: well, War and Peace was too big for me. I was, <laughs> I was too big. I've never read it. Still, I wouldn't, wouldn't tackle that. No, but I, I think um, sort of free recommendations. And um, so um, I sort of the Rye, um oh, Wasn't *Mickey in Cement Garden*? I read because I thought it would be a bit sexy. Um, yeah. Oh God, I can't remember what, that What yeah. was your favorite book that you read that 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 summer? *1984* by Orwell. I think I was a big Big Brother fan, and you know, I was watching, you know, sort of, you know. Rest, rest in peace, but Jay Goody and the likes, and I'm th- thinking, mm. you know, I, I would even watch them sleep on E4, that's how obsessed I was as a teenager on Bat Big Brother, and then when I was informed that this was based on this Orwell text, I was like, well, I need to read it, and I was, I was sort of you know, devoured it, I thought it was fantastic, I thought it was, the opening for me is, is probably one of the best openings in literature, um, so, I mean, 1984 for me stands out as being one of the sort of most influential texts of my of my early uh, sort of adolescent years, yeah.
0: Wow, that's really amazing, yeah. and so... When's what happens next in terms of because that sounds like a pretty amazing summer to kind of like suddenly just start like chaining books? What, when do you start like writing, doing creative writing? When does that start to becoming something that you it's kind of like teasing its way into your identity almost?
1: Mm. I mean, as I said, I've always written tiny snippets of poetry here and there, snippets of short stories here and there, perhaps through my teenage years. Um, but I suppose it wasn't really until until sixth form, in which I had to, um, we were looking at sonnets, and there was something I absolutely loved about the sonnet form, in fact it was so short, and the brevity of it, and the rules, I, I was also um, attracted by you know, the 14 lines and the Volta and the rhyming couplet at the end. And I liked the systematic rules in place and the fact there's only 14 lines. I was I tried writing one and of course, <laughs> it was about buses and my dad. Um, I think two of the things which feature a lot in my writing, you know, I never lived with my dad growing up and I've always, crave that nuclear family relationship and I think my dad features a lot in my writing because of that reason and also buses he was a bus driver so um, I wrote an early sonnet about him being a bus driver and from then I started making creating a collection of bus sonnets I hadn't written anything anything at length at this point I, as I said a few short stories here and there but I wrote a collection of uh, what I called bus sonnets and I made it all the way to 50 um, throughout throughout my course of sort of sixth form and university years uh, but I think these were just sort of early sort of um, sproutings of what was to become the 392 essentially because I had these ideas about buses and and relationships relations and buses and yeah so I, I you know I think it started from sixth form and the process of actually creating the 392 actually was was an elongated one which carried on through those years until its release this year. So. I'm
0: so this I am love that you started talking about sonnets because this gives me if not an excuse, then at least a pretext to start geeking out about form, uh, which, you know, this is a safe space for, like, nerdy, deep cuts <laughs> on, like, we spent whole episodes talking about, like, grammar and modal verbs and stuff like yes, that. Yes. What I want... So, because that, when you say that, then I'm like, ah, mm. wow. Then i thinking about the 392 and this format of multiple... Store interleaving stories and points of view on on a bus. I'm like, oh, I remember like my actually my favorite writing about the sonnet form was actually in Jay Z's Decoded. Where he, it was It's weird that I like read so much poetry theory, and it wasn't until I was reading Jay Z and he's like going, well, like what's a how, his definition of a p- poetry is poetry makes words work harder than they usually do and I was like oh my god thank you we can go on now like we don't have to have an argument about it anymore but he talks about the sonnet as being the point being because it's got that restriction because people have already written everything there is to say about love actually every time you go back to that you're forced out into these kind of cracks into these more interesting spaces like writing about buses if you write 50 poems set on a bus right By, like, 48, 49, you're having to, like, go to some pretty gnarly places. You're having to do stuff that you would never have thought of, I imagine, Mm. at number one, because you've exhausted those things and you're going into new territory, and actually something that constrains you initially Mm. actually ultimately is what forces you to break free and become original. Now, would would it be okay for you to... um, just give people who haven't read it a pricey of what the nine three two is a, uh, the the, the three nine two is about, and then I might ask you if you'd read the, f- read like the first page. Would yeah, that be alright?
1: No problem. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So the three nine two is set on a um, small single single decker London bus. It's told from um, nine of the passengers' perspectives. Plus, you also hear from the driver and someone at the end who I won't reveal um yeah i'll I'll be very delicate about um (laughs) any spoilers um for spoiler reasons yes um and you hear from those voices which perhaps you don't usually hear from and that was very important to me you hear from um You know, the school children at the back who are playing off their phone and always chatting so loudly and come across as quite disrespectful. You hear from the old granny with her shopping trolley, which is always blocking the way. You hear from a homeless guy who's talking to himself and taking pictures. Um, So you hear from those characters who perhaps have been marginalised by society and literature haven't given the voice um, in this way before. Um, So, yeah, I'd be quite happy to read um, the first page. Uh, So the first character is a character called Natalie. And uh, she is a um, young 19-year-old girl Um, and actually on this bit, she actually, um, she's not on the bus at the moment. She's just sort of talking about uh, her situation, shall we say. Hackney born and raised. I grew up on the street, the block, the bits, the estate, the hood, the ghetto, the ends, the manor. Whatever you want to call it, it's up to you, in it, But it was a total shithole something from a book and not one of them fairy tales because I ain't no princess so now I'm writing it all down, every little bit using the notes on my phone so you can read all about it keep calm you know, how can he text me to keep calm, I could kill him I feel to go to his flats through the play park with my hood up wait for someone to buzz me through the big blue doors my auntie lives on the fifth floor and I intercom doesn't work climb the concrete stairs two steps at a time squeeze in through his mum's kitchen window creep into his bedroom like I've done bare times anyways and while he sleeps shank him again and again boy, he's just lucky I'm not the violent type I mean, what must I look like? standing here under a railway bridge that stinks of piss stroking my belly which ain't even that big yet How can he send me a message saying I should keep calm, allow him and leave him alone? Not even man enough to come and say something to my face and accept the fact he's going to be a dad soon. Not man enough to come to this first proper appointment today, see our baby for the first time on a little TV and check we're well and healthy. Not there to hold my hand as the nurse puts that proper cold jelly on my belly or get my phone from the bottom of my bag to take pictures to put on Insta, ask the doctor questions and all that stuff Dad should do yeah thanks i i so uh,
0: it's really i just like rehearing that and thinking about how quickly it goes from like moments of humor to moments of like real poignancy but can we can we go back to like see so you've got these bus sonnets and they're they're building up I, I i i what do you think are some of the influences that went into three nine the three nine two um, and then i'm you know there's so many things i want to ask i'm actually the reason i'm pausing is cuz there's like a million directions i could come at this but that seems like the easiest one and then i want to ask you about voice and then okay. i want to ask you about form because <laughs> all of because there's so much going on in a small space figuratively and literally in this book and so
1: but let's start with the influences and we can go from there absolutely yeah i mean i was asked the question um i'm going to talk about literary uh, influences in just a second but i was asked the question why a bus um and I think it sort of goes back to what we talked about, you know, the idea of football and community, et cetera. It's a really small space in which intimate people are having to sit next to each other, people you've never met before, people who smell funny, people who have their own lives and have their own stories. And it was very important for me um, that it was this bus because with you know, in London, with tube trains or even, you know, commuter trains, for instance, um, you know, that they sort of, they span longer distances. with small buses like a single decker like the 392 is uh, is set on they go around the back roads they go around the estates they go around um, you know areas which perhaps aren't served by um, sort of bigger modes of transport so it was important for me that it was this little bus because you would see these characters who perhaps you know have these ailments or can't walk, walk, walk properly or something so it, it was um, it had to be a bus in relation to um, sort of literary influences you know we talked about voice well we're going to talk about voice a little bit a little bit more but voice and texts text that um, are very voice driven was very, very sort of important for me. So Sam Selvon's The Lonely Londoners, which is a very raw, gritty portrayal of, you know, um, Moses' first steps in London was very sort of significant to me. Um, but also someone like Poppy Shakespeare by Claire Allen, in which again, very voice driven, told from the perspective of a teenager and sort of a mental health institute. Um, this was that was very influential to me. It was all about how can I convey this voice that is authentic and raw, but also quite profound, and we feel this sort of um, unfelt empathy for. So it was, yeah, very. Voyaged. Well, because, like, yeah. I guess, like, a, a bus is like a place where a lot.
0: It, it's, you know, moving through the characters on the bus, it's really interesting that, you know, how quick they are to pigeonhole the other characters who are sharing that space and actually that's kind of true of most of the people Mm. we encounter that there's at least one other person if not multiple people on that same journey with them that they're if not dismissing at least kind of like putting in a box and labeling you know you know whether it's like the crackhead Mm. like that 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 becomes the totality totality of their identity and so as we shift through them we start You start kind of like breaking that down and kind of getting into it. And um, there's something very, very, and I mean this not as a backhanded, not as an insult, but like as a genuine compliment. But there's something very rightly about this, about being on a bus and Mm -hmm. wondering about the stories of everyone else on that bus. Um, I was wondering how you settled on your cast because of course for me the thing that i'd immediately think is oh my god like the choices are almost literally are as wide as humanity Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. how did you settle on who you who you were going to give the story to because you know you must have that is a really really wide net to cast how did you start finding those characters
1: yeah i suppose they they came to me eventually um I would say all of the characters in this final version of this book um, are of significance to me or a little bit of me, I suppose, in any sort of first novel that you are writing or eventually release, they are autobiographical in, in some way. So I do think there's a little bit of me in every single one of those characters. And you know, when you read it, you might think that's a little bit of a controversial statement. Um, but so for instance, the Natalie character, you know, this young girl, which I just read, um, she grew up in an area which is very similar to an area which i grew up in you know the blocks of flats and the the play park and the pit balls and the the sort of you know things you associate with a sort of inner city london area um but then you have the older lady the older character called gloria and i was very particular about how i wanted her voice to be um, heard you know i I really wanted her to basically my, my irish grandmother wanted her to be immortalized into a version of gloria not not fully, I would say about 70% of her is probably my my late grandmother. Um, I you know I, I took um, the liberty of ringing my dad and I see, I said to him, um, what do, what are some of the things that Nan used to say? You know, what sort of what sort of, sort of traits did she have and stuff, so I could get that in there. So I would say the Gloria character is yeah, 70% my grandmother, but with a little bit of extra, you know, a bit of creative license added onto it. Um, so yeah, who I mean, yeah, it has to be quite selective. In fact extremely late on in the editing process i'm talking maybe two months before the book was released um we lost two characters um and that was a sort of character from spain i really wanted to have an international character in there just to show you sort of you know it's obvious that london is this melting pot of different cultures and nationalities but we, we actually the voice was really hard to write and actually i felt really quite uncomfortable with that being out in the world and I'm actually really relieved that it's not in there anymore because I think it was a good editorial decision to, to perhaps save him for another book perhaps. Um, and also another character um, yeah, who, who, we, who we lost as well and, and actually he's a character that I'm working on for my next book. Um, so yeah, had to be quite selective and also i d- I couldn't have too many voices. I mean, when this was out for submission, of course the the feedback was actually very, very good, and I was very, very pleased with it generally. But of course, they were a bit they a bit worried about are oh, the voices going to be a bit too blurred? How, how do you distinguish the voices, etc So I had to be very careful. um but yeah, so we have i mean sort of the generic characters you might expect on an on a bus, um but I suppose they will have their own backstories, which I hope. Um, doesn't make them cliched or hackneyed and hackneyed is a very fitting work as it sense um but yeah we have the um yeah the pregnant lady we have the the homeless guy we have the you know the old the old granny with the shopping trolley um we have the school kids um, we have the guy who's a lawyer um after a very troubled past so we, yeah i had to be yeah I had to be selective but i also felt they was it was a good cross section of society in 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 london but also generally um
0: you you talked about um you said that it was important to you. You wanted these characters to be authentic. And I wondered if we could just drill down into that for a second. What does authenticity mean to you as a writer? Mm.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that term, I mean, I was use that word loosely because I don't think authenticity can ever entirely be, be achieved. Um, but I suppose, yeah, authentic in the idea in which it is believable, relatable but also we feel, you know, empathy for them, for these characters. So I think there's all of those sort of aspects amalgamated were very, very important for me. But also what I was balancing that idea of it being authentic was that it needed to be readable. This is a book after all. Mm. Um, And I wanted the readership to be a wide readership. I wanted it to be, um, you know, fans of canonical literary fiction, but also I wanted it to be sixth formers in schools that I used to work in. You know, I wanted, so it was a very wide readership. And with that, I had to balance um, how much detail do I make to try and replicate authenticity. And I, you know, this is actually a very terse book. I think you know, it's it's one which people have said they said they they've devoured in one go or they've read in one go because it's deliberately quite short. As I said, I got rid of a few characters. When I was writing this, I had a sort of whiteboard of sort of statements in which I wanted to um, tick off as I wrote it. And one of them was I, I said no boring bits. Yeah, um, <laughs> That's, it's so amazing
0: to me that there's so many writers who wouldn't think of having that as a. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, it was like I think it was I mean number guilty as ch- guilty
0: as charged. Right?
1: <laughs> I think it was number one on the list um, because as you know, I, we went through that sort of reluctant reader stage, which we talked about before. And I really, as I said, if this if a sixteen year old picks this up, and I'm not saying it's ideal for sixteen year but if they did. Um, and they enjoyed it and I'd be really happy. I'd be really chaffed. Yeah, yeah
0: it, it, the, the the danger with multiple perspectives is always that it slows the narrative down mm. um, because you see the same thing from multiple perspectives and so by nature. But uh, in this, the chapters are quite short and there's tension that's escalating and actually it feels a bit more like, it kind of reminds me of, of, of uh, uh, this is a weird weird comparison but it kind of reminds me of Dune in the same way that basically you've got this ramping tension Mm. and multiple perspectives Dune is uh it just is happens to be omniscient, but it means it switches between lots of different heads. But actually, what the the feeling is more like you're sitting around the table at a poker game, mm. and you can see what everyone's hand is, mm-hmm. but you know that they don't know what each other's hands are. Yeah. So that that's what make then you're you're not like oh come on like and nobody knows as much as me as the reader. The tension is that they do, that they don't. Um, can I wanted to ask about one character that I was particularly interested in asking about interested in all of them Mm. but could you talk a bit about how you came to write Ray because I would have found that character really hard to write and I would be I'm interested to know I can guess like one of your ways in Mm. but I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about him
1: yeah sure um so the character of Ray he is a um he's a football fan and he has very sort of problematic opinions I think about about society but I think he's also suffering because of um he's also, he's blind, Um, and and Ray, when I was writing Ray's voice, it was, you know, I enjoyed it because I used to be a football referee, and I used to go around um, London and the surrounding counties, and also I've done a bit here in in Norfolk, and when you are a football referee, it also comes with um, abuse sometimes, you know, verbal abuse, and I was thinking to myself, especially when I'm linesman, when you're a linesman or assistant referee, I should say, you're closer to the to the sidelines and then closer to the spectators. And I've been, you know, assistant referee on so many games on a Saturday, but also midweek in the middle of nowhere, where there's this guy behind me and he's drinking his pint and he's just yelling abuse at me. And I was thinking, I was thinking of, of sort of those figures when I was writing Ray, you know, he's just sort of frustrated, annoyed, drunk, perhaps. Um, and I, you know, when I was writing Ray's voice, it was uncensored. There's quite, a, you know, there's quite a bit of swearing in there, and both my publisher and, and uh, agent felt it was, it was, it was okay to keep, and I was glad because, I mean, swearing is a, as a, in a football fan's uh, vocabulary is pretty common. So um, uh, yeah, I actually found Ray's voice um, pretty enjoyable to write in many ways.
0: That's um, it's weird that you say that a character is based around, strangers, hurling abuse <laughs> at you was enjoyable to write. Because I would have thought you would have lots of very understandable resentment towards them. And yet, the way you talk about these people, you're being incredibly empathetic. And I just <laughs> want to know how you how you got there. And I'd yeah. and, and like to ask you to drill down a little bit into why it's enjoyable to write a character who, you know, talks about you know is 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 racist is kind of like angry i i'm interested to know why that was enjoyable to mm. write mm.
1: i think with ray he's he's troubled and he has his own problems and the way he shows those problems perhaps um you know is highly negative but actually i think you'd be forgiven for actually feeling a bit sorry for him as you read um his first and second um sort of chapters in the novel um you can see that he has a family uh, obviously he's he's been affected uh, terribly by his blindness um and just feels a little bit lost. And I feel like when you've lost one of your i mean i'm not obviously i have never been blind I'm not blind, but when you've lost one of those senses, then what you listen to becomes a little bit more profound, and obviously he's heard all of these horrible things about terrorism um and um you know and, and such and so has these really warped ideas about what society has become without having to see it about having seen it himself so yeah i do think because he is quite troubled and, and i really wanted that to be conveyed in little snippets you know he was a successful cab driver before and he had a family um and it's just been he's just been horribly affected by this blindness um and, and this is sort of warped his his sort of his view on, on on life so actually you're meant to feel a little or not meant to be so but you are you're allowed to feel a little bit sorry for him even though he has really problematic ideals which are shown throughout the book
0: did you can you remember how that character came to you how you started right like did you i mean like with, with these voices were they did you start them just sort of letting them speak or did you have a because you know there is like a story that's driving this did you
1: have were they did you have a plot that you Mm. were
0: working could you
1: you talk a bit about that yeah sure well I'll be honest the plot came very late on for me the voices were so important I didn't have a story it it feels voice led and I mean that in the best way I like pantsing I like I know
0: like with Game of Thrones kind of like reaching its climax a lot of people are talking about the problem with like not having an art plan but like um, (laughs) but I i love stuff that where characters feel like they have agency mm. um but yeah sorry go, go, go on could you talk a bit about uh that i interrupted no, you absolutely
1: fine i mean yeah you're absolutely right this this was very much a, a voice driven project i didn't really have an idea um how i was going to end it all until very late on i had i had sort of you know sort of sproutings of ideas i knew i wanted there to be a twist at the end as i was an english teacher from for for five years and I was just teaching uh, Priestley's uh, Inspector Calls. And in Inspector Calls, there's a big yeah. twist at the end. And when I used to teach that, the students would go, oh, you know, like, oh, my God, I can't believe the this. That was so good. And I really wanted to sort of emulate that feeling uh, by having a twist. And that was very, very important. But throughout the process of writing it, actually, it was all about voice for me. I wanted to really capture that, what we talked about before, that sort of essence of a uh, small London bus being a melting pot of voices and people. Um, and yeah, the plot plot came after. But in relation to Ray, I'll be honest here, I did a master's part time while I was teaching at City University London. And one of the writing activities was to write um, from the perspective as a blind, of a blind man. Um, and I would say the final end product of Ray and that that, that that early exercise is sort of, is quite night and day and rather different. But the initial idea to write um, a blind character, which is something I've never done before, um, probably stemmed from that MA activity, um, and as well, actually, the character that I lost, that I was telling you before, the sort of Spanish-speaking character, um, he stemmed from a MA activity, but didn't make the cut, but yeah, I think writing exercise writing exercises like that sort of help actually because you can sort of then even if they don't become the final piece you can sort of work and and still sentences and still paragraphs still ideas from from those early exercises so
0: i think that's so good for people to hear because the number of people who struggle with writing and just don't haven't been exposed to or don't think of doing writing exercises you know what actually the people who could do with writing exercises are authors doing their second novels because they imagine that they have graduated from them and they're so useful
1: so true i'm Properly struggling with my second oh, novel mate. at the moment. <laughs> Honestly, I can't tell you. Like, I mean, I really enjoyed writing the three nine two. I found it like there was a real liberty, and it was real. It was all sort of catharsis for me. But I'm really struggling with a uh, novel two. I've like, it's like, I'm in my study, which is not too far from here, um and I'm, um, I can't. um Nothing, nothing's coming to
0: what, me. So uh, can we? Can we? Can we? We'll go back into this book a bit, cause I want to <laughs> yeah. talk about form. But I'd really like to ask you about this, because I've encountered this, encountered this again and again and again, and I've been through it myself. <laughs> what do you think's going on for you when you are sitting down and writing isn't coming? Because we talk about this, and we're laughing about it, and you're smiling. Mm-hmm. But I know that it causes many writers yeah. genuine heartache. And we want to come across as professionals and competent and not feel the kind of like tap on the shoulder saying uh you don't belong in the writing club you've been found out as a fraud what do you think is going on for you when because you say i can't write some i've you know i spoke to um uh i i i spoke to a couple of writers who just say oh but the way i write the way i get around is i just sit down and just turn up and i just write and It's harder than that. So I want to know what... Because people will hear that and go, Mm. well, why didn't you just write? Yeah. Why don't you just write? What's going on?
1: Yeah. I'm quite scared about how little I've written recently. Um, I'll be honest. Um, Like I was in the shower today listening to Andrew Cohen again. I keep mentioning Andrew Cohen, but he's my supervisor, so I feel like I have to. And he was talking about how he struggled to write crustaceans, which I think was his fourth book. And he was like... It was sort of like a mental... It became sort of like a mental illness for him. Uh, I was like, I think I'm sort of getting there. Like... I'm, I'm like worried I, I'm, I think the fact that pos the, poss- the sorry the possibility of getting published with this one actually seems a bit more likely now that i've released a 392 i feel like there's a bit more pressure uh and also when i was writing 392 i was a teacher so this was sort of the thing that i was doing on my on the, on the side now i'm dedicating a lot more time uh to this second novel and i feel like if i don't write enough on a day then i'm not doing a good job i'm i'm like, why am I not exhausted from writing? You know, my partner's a teacher, for instance, and she comes home exhausted, and I feel like you have every right to be exhausted. I've done two sentences, why am I tired, you know? So, I yeah, it is a bit of a worry to me. I do. That's why I think, you know, writing exercises um, will help, but also just leaving the house, uh, you know, when I go for a coffee or go for a walk in the park, it actually really helps me to sort of conjure up ideas. And even if I don't use them, um, I think actually the, the air, the bit of fresh air actually really helps. But I think um, I'm gonna start, you know, this is the first year of my phd of, of three years i'm going to really go for it for the second and third year and with the help of the, you know my my supervisors at uea and also um my fellow peers on the course I, I should be able to get through this 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 barrier but i do think yeah you do need the support of other people absolutely to get through it um but you, you need know. to you need to be like it's gonna i
0: i don't i feel like I'm only a tiny, tiny way for, further than you on the curve. Mm-hmm. Like I've just had my second book out and it took me four years to write. And I feel like I want to kind of like spin the chair around backwards and sit on it and, and a completely unearned kind of like avuncular moment. But my <laughs> my things I would say, say to, to you and feel free to ignore them if, if it's, uh, I don't mean to sound condescending, but it's like, you will never ever be horrible enough to yourself to make yourself right so you might as well give that up now about going oh i've not done enough today my partner's got a real job oh i'm such a bad person that will, that will never re- reach the fever pitch you're hoping to where suddenly you start writing so you might as well be, start being nice to yourself unless you just want to be nasty to yourself for fun be be nice to yourself i spoke to this psychologist um i spoke i had a few psychologists on the show and neuro neuropsychologists and um Uh, I had a procrastination expert on the show uh, and he told me that negative self-judgment correlates strongly with increased procrastination. The more forgiving you are of your own procrastination, the less procrastination you have, because the more nasty you are to yourself about it... uh, the more you start avoiding thinking about it, and the less able you are to deal with the roots of the procrastination. So my fee- my Sounds feeling to, to you is like: be nice to yourself. Um, <laughs> Sold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just you. I, I, I like more and more. I want to reach out to writers who go through this because there's an assumption that that you have, you do have to go through it a little bit, uh, but I do think there is. It's not necessary, and there is joy, and there's so much you're going to enjoy writing so much there's like there is a promised land mm, on the absolutely. other side of that yeah. procrastination C- can can you talk to me a little bit about form because you have a Raymond Cano quote at the beginning and I immediately was just like oh maybe I'm gonna to get to talk about the Ulipo maybe I'm gonna to get to talk <laughs> about like French experimental literature but what I'm particularly interested in is like you know his elements of, of style and this idea of having a restricted space to tell your story in, a kind of rear window kind of thing. So what I'd like uh, like to ask is like, this bus is your sonnet form and this story has got these individual characters. Can you tell me about the challenges and opportunities of telling a story in a very restricted space and in a mode where you've set Mm. some rules for yourself? Mm. Because I started, I have to say, I won't keep this question going on forever, but I started like, I felt like I was becoming paranoid because I started like looking for numbers on each page. I was like, is this an Olympian constraint? Is there like going to be like a number on each place? I was trying to add numbers together. I was like, I was like, what's going on here? But could you talk a little bit about...
1: That's really interesting that you did that. No, no, no. I mean, there's nothing too fancy or clever about, I mean, how this was constructed in many ways. But I was very particular about, I wanted you to hear from each passenger twice. I mean, you know my agent and no my agent yeah she was like you don't have to hear from each passion twice or you could do free from one free with you know three chapters for one character and one for the other i was like no no no. it needed to be you need to hear from twice i, I want it to be neat and tidy and that was very important um i mean it wasn't too clever in relation to you know the raymond quino quote um from exercises of in style i mean i just loved it because it was set on a bus and i loved how yeah we talked about the constraint writing and i think it's you know i used to teach a level creative writing and i think it was a very nice way to sort of get people writing, I'll try writing about your day on the bus in sonnet form, or try writing about your day on the bus, just using, you know, not using letter E or something. So, um I mean, there wasn't too anything too clever about the composition of the three nine two, mainly because I talked about, you know, readership. I wanted it to be highly accessible to, you know, not too far from the kids that I was teaching. So, I was, as I said, I taught sixth form, and I really wanted my sixth formers to read this. Um And I didn't want them to be sort of, you know, overly lost by any sort of, you know, any sort of numerical code like that. But... um <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, in relation to... like, Yeah, every chapter is roughly the same size, and that's probably the OCD in me. I wanted it, wanted it to be really neat. Um hear from the bus driver once, because I think she was a very integral character, and she would see sort of like the the twist at the end. And also hear from the additional character at the very, very end, um, in which it, it tidies it all up, and that was very important. I mean, there wasn't very much editing going on with the 392, very little editing. For, for the first... The only chapters that were edited um with sort of any stringent detail was the last chapter Mm. it was very very important the last chapter was was spot on because we're talking about really profound themes of you know terrorism and death and love and it was very important that it was tied in in a very suitable and apt manner um but before then actually no it was editing was 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 very sort of was very short and the the voices are uncensored and they're raw and they're gritty and that's how exactly how i wanted them to be but I, I feel like that...
0: So it may seem like it's kind of like just uh, being a, a bit fussy to have you hear from each character twice, each mm-hmm. chapter is the set of roughly the same length, but actually that creates... Uh, for me, it created a sense of expectation where you start... You know, humans are pattern recognising. We love mm-hmm. patterns. Yeah. And as soon as you see that's what's... As soon as I... like, In fact, as soon as I was like three characters in... I started anticipating the moment where the character that all three of them had been talking about um, when we were gonna get their voice. And I think that's really pleasurable. And it's actually a simple thing that a lot of writers do intuitively, but don't realize what the payoff is, which Mm -hmm. was that I started going, something would happen in the background of two characters' things. And I'd go, oh great, if I read on, I'm gonna get like the skinny on what's happening with that person. And so then that's another hook that's, like, drawing you through the story. And you do actually a great job, partly because of that form, of creating, like, promises to us that are drawing us through the text. Mm -hmm. If I keep Mm -hmm. reading, I'm going to get this. Um, And once we know we're going to hear from each character, when we get the sense we're going to hear from each character twice, we're like, I can't wait to get back to such and such, you know, to get back there again. So I think the form... And that restriction, actually, it, it keeps it moving. It keeps it pacey. And as a reader, there's a real pleasure. Humans, we just love form, right? Yeah, and, and and you go, absolutely. I know where this is going. And we can sort of move yeah. forward. Not we know where this is going plot-wise, but I know what promises are being made to gotcha. me and what's coming yeah. up later on. Reader
1: satisfaction was really important to me. You know, I really wanted... And I think that's part of that. You know, You're right, when you hear... Um, two characters talking about another character or mentioning something they can hear, then hopefully you would be like, oh yes, we're going to find out about that character as you've alluded to just a moment ago. So that was very important for me. I didn't want you to be disappointed by <laughs> a lack of character or a lack of that incident, which, where's that gone? Or, you know, there's a the talk of, an oh yeah, the MP. And um, in early drafts, an MP was actually quite was quite a late character. In early drafts, they're talking about the MP without actually the MP featuring. Mm. So I had to put a, I added a very comical MP character um into it because, as I said, you know, reader satisfaction was really important to me. I really want you to enjoy this from the first page to the end. I want, you know, I want there to be a twist at the end. It's a sort of, you know, in relation to the structure and and form, it's uh, relatively formulaic, I suppose, in many ways in which you you get that building up to a big thing at the end.
0: Can you talk a little bit about, it's really interesting how many times you've talked about the reader's experience of it. Only because I so rarely (laughs) hear authors yeah. Going, oh, uh, this is what I. It seems to you really. You've said several times you want it. It's important to you. That it's like accessible, and it's important that it's pacey, and it's important that it's not boring to people. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you write something while conceiving of an audience simultaneously? Because to some people, I guess they'd be hearing that they'd go like, "I don't, I," you know, the like the last thing I need is. More fear, more like mm. voices fearing I'm going to disappoint these imaginary people um, who will be real at some stage. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a bit about how mm. you manage that and maybe why that was so
1: yeah. important to you to consider? I'm on a bit of a sort of personal mission to get, you know, we talked about my, my reading habits and my reading background and routine earlier. I'm on a personal mission, personal mission to get as many young black men, young black boys reading. And I think the Nine series, my first step on that. My second book is about a a black football referee. And again, I hope um, young black men and young black boys want to read that too. Um, So that is a bit of a personal mission for me in which I was targeting a particular audience, of which I am part of, um, and writing to that um, criteria, so to speak. Uh, but in saying that, I, I hope this is a book for everybody. And that was, you know, that's also part of my thinking. But when I was writing it, um, I was also thinking of, is this something that I would read? You know, and I would print it off regularly and, and um, you know, sort of reaffirm that, yeah, I would read this or, you know, with certain pits. So, yeah, I think that drive and desire to get a certain demographic of reader to read this was my, was my key ambition as well um so i suppose it that sort of explains its terseness sort of explains its form sort of explains why it, you know in the, there isn't that sort of you know um restrictions in same place but yeah no i think that that's what i was going for
0: can yeah. you talk a bit about um your experience of getting published because i've just you know been through it for <laughs> this the, the second time and i'm still a bit I'm still, a bit, I'm still a bit coming down from it, like <laughs> shell shocked. But can you talk a little bit about what it was like? You know, from how you sort of started sub- submitting it yeah. to now you've now you've seen it like on the shelves.
1: I mean, even when I only had fifteen thousand words of this, and I say that because I just finished the MA at City, and you only had to submit fifteen thousand words. Even when I'd only just submitted those fifteen thousand words. I had a really good feeling that this would... If I got this right, I could get this published.
0: Uh. You're so much better than me. I did 15,000 words for my MA and they were dog shit. They were so bad.
1: <laughs> well, I'm sure mine were bad. I don't think mine was great either, to be honest. But... I was.
0: I was like... I, I mine with it, honestly, I just, rem- you've <laughs> just sure given me like bad. a flashback. I just remembered I drew a picture on the front. I, why did <laughs> yeah. I, why did I draw a, that's why did Cater- I draw That's a the picture? very Hungry Caterpillar
1: S that yeah, is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was
0: really bad. It was really bad. If, if, if you wrote something and it became a published book after your MA, my hat is off to you because it took me like,
1: it took me like 15 years after I afterwards. think it was very naive of me. I mean, I was, I mean, obviously. I mean, but it, you were right, I right? right no, I was, I was, I was, but uh, I was twenty. 20- Five, i think um and i only had fifteen thousand words um but i felt like i personally i've never read anything like this before you know i've obviously had written as i've read very voice driven stuff that we talked about before but i was like i've never read something like this before and i think my friends would read this so that means that's four people that would buy it so you know i've only got three friends apparently <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. um but yeah so i thought if i get this if i finish this and I had, obviously the premise was all in place. The plot obviously needed tidying up at the end, like we talked about before. But if I finish this, I, I've firm belief that someone—it might take, you know, J.K. Rowling-esque um, rejections first, but someone will take a, will take a punt on me. Um, so I managed to get a, a good agent um, straight after the MA. When I was very lucky after the MA. Um, one one afternoon, this is no joke. One afternoon, I was teaching um, teaching year eleven. And I checked my phone, which I shouldn't have done. But I checked my phone, and I got five emails from prospective um, agents. Fucking hell! I'd be checking my my phone
0: every lesson after that. That's <laughs> such a reinforcement, <laughs> right? If you just well, I'm gonna always know, lessons can yeah, fuck off. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I just get on with quiet reading. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Specific. Yeah. So, sorry. Did, five. Sorry. What? Five happened,
1: emails that? from uh, literary agents. Um, because what happened was, as part of my MA, they um, they collate your first chapter and create an anthology. Yeah. And then the anthology is sent out to agents, over 150 agents, um, you know, nationally and internationally. But we, didn't, when we were doing the course, we didn't think much of it. They were like, oh yeah, you know, they, they say this, but nothing will happen. And I think it must've been the week in which they received the anthology. And that's when I got those emails. Congratulations, man. That's oh, awesome. Yeah, I was super chuffed. But then when I actually went for meetings with these agents, a lot of them were like, oh, we thought you'd finished the novel. We didn't know it was just, you would only done 15,000 words. Get back to us when you finished. Um, apart from my agent who I have now, Philippa Sitters, um, who who loved it, got the voices, was like, can you sign straight away? And I was like, yeah. You know, I really, I was so impatient. I could have... It's, it's a test for them though as well. Yeah. That's the thing
0: is you go to those meetings. People think, I think if you've never had someone like say yes to you before, like I always imagined, well, it's because it's true. Like the first, first person to say to me, oh, I'm interested in representing you. Um, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I desperately wanted to please them. But actually, it means so much for you to find someone who goes, who asks you the right questions about your work. That's
1: very important. I know there's a lot of fear and trepidation about picking agents. And I think that's so, so key. I think it's very important. I know, I mean, agents are so, so busy. They read a lot of submissions and manuscripts. Um, But yeah, it's so important you have that rapport and they've clearly read your work. Um, given their heavy timetables and whatnot um, and they ask you questions about it and that's exactly what what Philippa and you know and, and, and my agent did it of course um, and I had to go for it I thought she was she, she was just so enthusiastic and passionate about where it could go and um, it wasn't we really, we weren't really talking about the future too much we weren't really talking about oh we were sent to this publishing house sent to the here and here and here we were talking about the work and that was so so important. She was like, "Oh, so what ideas do you have for this character? What ideas do you have for this character?" Um, so yeah, I, you know, it was it was a really it was a really fantastic That's awesome, experience. Man. I was very lucky, you know. I was, I felt incredibly lucky. So that was um October 2017 which I signed with um with Philippa from uh David Godwin Associates. And we said we arranged a deadline to try and get um 60,000 words done by Christmas that year. So November, you know, yeah, about just under three months. Just on, just under three months, yeah. And I was like, yeah, let's, let's, let's get this challenge done. So I had about 15,000 words. And I was still working full-time as an English teacher at this point. I would go to work, do a six-period day, have having to mark books, having to plan lessons, and then come home. I would eat. And then because I had this deadline and I was so enthusiastic about getting this book finished, I would write until 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. And then, have, and then having to get up early at 5 o'clock in the morning the next day. But because... I was really enjoying my writing at this point. You know, I was really—I found the voices so excitable to write. I was had loads of ideas. I was travelling on the bus and the train Thameslink more or less every day, so I was getting these ideas. There's also two school, um, school, two school children characters in there. I was getting ideas from the children. I was working. So You were with. kind of like really in
0: the env- environment to get. I mean, that doing that with
1: your teaching must have been Oh, yeah. knackering. Absolutely knackering. I had no nails left. I was biting all my nails. You know, I was um absolutely exhausted but then i did it you know i remember printing off my first first draft by christmas using the well just for christmas i was using the school computer uh, school photocopier sorry yeah. um to print off my first draft and i was like i did it you know i made sixty thousand words um and at this point i was like just get published straight away you know ready. <laughs> let's go and obviously it was it was an awful first draft you know i think most first drafts are allowed to be a little bit awful you know they're not going to be perfect um, as I said, characters have gone. Um, structure has changed quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I did it, and then it was—it wasn't as easy as after that. Yeah, that was that seemed easy. I got an agent really quickly, and I finished my first draft. It sounds a bit sort of unreal in many ways. And actually, the following six, seven months were actually pretty tough of going back and forth with my agent, who was also very, very busy and changing. Man, you know. How can you talk a bit. a bit about?
0: Can you speak a bit about revisions? Because I always find them harder than i expect even though i've been through it a few times now i find it harder than i expect I find it emotionally harder mm. i'd like to think you know i come on this show and people send in their work and i read through their first page and go change this, change this change this there you go easy easy go and do it and then when it comes to my own work i like get sent revisions and i'm like i don't know if i can do that why <laughs> yeah. why can't you either say it's perfect or say it's unfixable and kill it off. Yeah. So I do, either way I don't have to do anything. Why are you making me do this? I might make it worse. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that because you said it was harder? Yeah. How was it, how did that feel for you like having to revise your book?
1: Yeah, I found editing on the whole harder than writing. Um yeah, I think it's you you become quite precious over the words that you've put together and the voices that you've created Um, and when someone's taking their time to to read your work you actually want to negotiate a sort of safe space in which you can either yeah, delete or It's a ads, relationship don't. that adds
0: that, that requires so much trust yeah, as well. Absolutely. Especially when you're writing, you know, when you've got characters who are like talk you know, talking in kind of like a like roman dialect, or yes, you've got yeah. different people who your reader doesn't necessarily have the ear to accurately edit absolutely. that. So how do you negotiate yeah, yeah. that when you when you've been having to ring up your dad to say can you
1: run some, can run some stuff by me? Yeah, it wasn't easy. I'm sure it wasn't easy for Philippa because I was mentioning, yeah, absolutely all sorts of references um, and using all sorts of, you know, slang words in there. So it definitely wasn't easy. And I think actually she left me to it. I mean, it came to those sort of more tricky instances in which you perhaps didn't know really what was going on, actually. Um, but yeah, there was a few things in which she said, which, edit, and she edited, um, which we edited together, which I, I'm really grateful for. There was a bit... Um, a sex scene if you like in which he said it was too much and I was like yeah you're probably right it probably was too <laughs> much um, but yeah I mean I think yeah you become quite precious about those words and also you feel like you don't want to disappoint your agent who's actually put in a lot of work for you you know to get to the stage and and, you know, the ne- you know, hopefully you think the next stage is, pu- is publishing, but actually it might not be. It could just be sitting, you could be editing back and forth for months and months and months and it could not go anywhere. So I was quite worried about that. And I was thinking, oh, now, because now I was thinking my, you know, my target audience of, <laughs> you know, my prominent target audience of being black boys um, and black young men, that's not going to get me a publishing deal. And maybe I should start changing it. Maybe I should start thinking about it, you know, and that, that's. So then you're second guessing your imagined
0: audience. How did you, how did you find that when it starts going to publishers, when you've got your, your target audience are kind of like over here. And then the publishing world that you're sending it out to are very much, those people aren't really represented at all within Mm -hmm. the kind of like upper middle class, uh, white publishing community. How did, how, what was that experience like of then sending it out to people? Because it's that, it, you know, it's, well, there's no, I, I'm not going to preface it. I'm just saying that must have been really tricky to hold your nerve.
1: Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. And yeah, so when we, when when it was time to send out for submission officially to, to publishing houses, um we didn't send it out to many at first, obviously. We, we were quite tentative about how many we send it out to, just in case, you know, we don't know what happened later on down the line. And yeah, their responses were... So we sent it out to about five or six publishing houses initially. Um, and their responses were very good, and actually they were not just, you know, one-liners. Often they were two free paragraphs. So someone's actually taken the care to, you know, from these bigger publishing houses to... um to read your work and actually suggest a few things or perhaps, or, you know, mostly positive and then a few lines of suggestions. Perhaps can you make the voices a bit more distinguishable? Have you tried extending this chapter a little bit more? Maybe just focus on one character? I mean, it's too late to just pick one character now. was like, no, I'm going for all of it. But um, generally... That, I mean, I'd have to say that someone asking, focus on one character is asking for a... Could you just
0: write me a different book? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I, like, people who are, like, suggesting tweaks or, like, where... But just to say, can yeah. you focus on one character? That
1: means going back to, like, 5,000 words of material and then starting all over oh, you're again. You're incredibly Absolutely. kind not to yeah. just say,
0: can you... Why don't you, <laughs> do you... you just fuck off? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Um, but, yeah, no, it was, there was some trepidation ascending out. But in the end, I was... By the end of feeling, you know, up and down about, like, oh, who am I going for? Who's my audience here? I was like, do you know what? I'm going to stick with this gritty, voice-driven, slangy, um, you know, depiction of characters on a, on a bus and just and see what and see what happens um so yeah then we then we just then we um sent it out to this publishing uh indie press called uh own it and actually there is a bit of a backstory why we sent it out to own it i actually taught um an own it book and sorry i added an own it book to the curriculum i was teaching at the school i was working at in, um, in northwest london and i didn't know much about them but i just knew that more or less <laughs> all of the um uh, the, the the people in year nine, all students in year nine were reading this book. Um, and I was like, oh, what are you reading? And it was this memoir called Prisoner to the Streets by Robin Travis, who own it published. And I read it in like one or two nights. And I was like, this is brilliant. This is gritty, this is voice driven, this is slangy. This is exactly like my book in many ways. It's not, but it's similar. Um, so I, I said to Philippa, can we send them a manu- you know, send them a copy of the manuscript. And uh, yeah, um, Philippa and Crystal, um had a meeting and it was sent out you know it was talked about and a few months later we got we got a, an offer and i was delighted i was really delighted for me owning, uh you know an indie press really going places and i thought it was the perfect fit more incentive you know i've read quite a lot of their books now and i think it's absolutely fitting for the 392 and yes we could have waited for a bigger um Publisher to come in, perhaps, or tweak my manuscript a little bit more and see what happens. But I'm really glad we didn't um, because it's happened so quickly, and mm. I'm really happy about. It is pretty raw. It's a it's a raw re- read. Raw read. That's not easy to say. Mm. Um, and I'm quite happy about that. It's relatively deliberate. You know what I mean? It's it's and well, there's no.
0: I mean, I, th- I think there's no one. I you know you can you can fail badly while trying to write stuff, d- sort of deliberately trying to write stuff for an imagined audience. So if you, you're going to fail, you might as well fail at doing something that you love that represents you because if you did get something published where you'd compromised it to death, you wouldn't... You you know, you'd get some money for it, but you wouldn't enjoy it. Mm. Like, I, yeah. you know, if you sold out basically <laughs> I mean it's a nice problem to have but it's so much nicer to do something, there's a real piece I think that comes with writing something on your own terms
1: Yeah, definitely. And- like
0: the way you don't feel too anxious about oh, people are people going to like this, of course you want people to like it and buy it because there's loads of, there's a whole you know all these different people who've had faith in you but in terms of is it good or not, I don't, I sort of never really worried about the honours when, I, after I wrote it Mm. because I knew that all the people who said, maybe you should make it a bit less weird. I'd like gone, no, I'm going to, this is what it yeah. is. This is what it is. And then I'd done my best on those terms. And I just felt like, I know I couldn't have made this any better. I don't have to worry. Oh, was I like fucking about? Mm. Um, and I know I didn't change it to please anyone. Whereas my memoir, um, We Can't All Be Astronauts. Yeah. I know I made quite a lot of changes to that to get it, to roll it over the line, I know I changed it from what I wanted it to be, to be something the publishers wanted it to be, and you know I look back at it now, and people were reading it, and I go, I feel a bit uncomfortable about it, you know, mm, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really happy with it out there representing me, and so I think, I'm just, it just hearing you talk about it, it just makes me, I feel slightly angry actually that you would, that the publishing industry would ever make you feel like this book is an isn't what a book should be because I was reading it going fuck this is like interesting it's got great characters it's inherently literary in that it's it's there's a love of language there's a love of voice there's a love of like deep nuanced characters and the idea that there's a publishing industry who is making writers like you feel like oh this isn't what we want or need is is fucking awful because how much stuff how many people don't have your confidence and won't like submit how many people won't sort of like mm. make those connects because we like because it's good right because yeah, it's a really absolutely. good book I tried to hold back being too zycophantic until late in the interview so I don't make <laughs> people feel uncomfortable but like this is such a readable this is such oh, a readable you. book, and I, I don't I don't mean readable in some things of, like, going, it's light. Like, it, some bits are readable, but really difficult to read emotionally, mm. but they're easy to follow. I just... Oh, what, you, what is your sense of... Sorry, I've just gone off on That's one, but okay. what's your sense of the publishing industry at the moment? Because there's obviously some great... You know, you've got your publisher who's, like, putting out great books... That people are interested in and uh but what's your sense of the publishing industry at the moment and where where things stand
1: there, there does seem to be a shift um for publishing more diverse voices and i don't mean diverse in i mean i mean diverse in every sense i'm talking about skin color creed i'm talking about sex of course but um i feel it's just not happening quickly enough and there are two little prominent figures trying to make that change, you know. Speaking of uh, Charmaine Lovegrove and Crystal Mahi Morgan, um, but there needs to be more of there needs to be more of these um, more of these opportunities for for young writers of minorities minority groups to to just sort of show themselves, write what they want to write, and and also make it clear to them that actually you could you can get published you can make it as a writer making it you know, being quite careful about what they making it mean but you know just you know get published get your words out there um so I do think there is there is a change um especially with the figures that I mentioned but I wish it happened before and I wish it there were more of them um because I still don't think um there are enough I'm going back to black men here but enough black young black men writing or having their words heard you know there is this fantastic anthology called safe and it's um it's um, uh, essays written by black writers playwrights poets um novelists um and there are about i don't know probably about 13 14 of them and you know they they range from um you know Figures who have who have great success and figures who are sort of moderately successful, but I really wish there were more. I really really wish there were more because there are, especially when we talk about, you know, ideas of um, disillusionment in in London in particular of young black boys and that, them turning to, to to gang life and knife crime etc. I do think if there were more figures like those in the Safe Anthology, hopefully myself in a few more years when I've written a few more books, perhaps. Um, we can make a real difference. We can make a real difference. And that that's something that I'm really, really passionate about. I, you know, I really want there to be more opportunity for young black boys and young black men in this country because I think, you know, they've got it tough and we need to help. Um, so yeah, in relation to the publishing industry, um, I mean, they—they they, when, I, when I was talking about the feedback that I received when I sent out the 392 initially for submission, probably this time last year, I actually felt proud um, of the feedback generally, there were one or two in which in that those are the two perhaps in which um, is a bit more worrying or questionable, but generally I felt they were being quite positive and I think perhaps if the manuscript changed a little bit they might have gone for it whereas perhaps if one or two publishing houses whatever would have changed just because of the voice, just because of the slang they use and, and the demographic of the of the passengers on board they wouldn't have gone for it anyway. So yeah, I, I mean, yeah. There's, yeah, there's you know, work to be done. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I think, of course, like I'm not suggesting that a book should go out and every single publisher in the UK should say, yeah. I mean, that, that never happened. It does strike me though, that when I've talked to, I had a, a publicist on earlier in the year and we were talking about
1: the Oh, was this Millie? Was it? Yeah. Yes, yeah, to that. yeah and and
0: cool. and and um, we were talking about the concept of like the super, the super advance, um, and the super lead, and all, all the big books that have kind of like in the last twenty years that have come out that have had this kind of big publishing push behind them, where it's been a big debut, and they're they've sort of almost all been uh, a white middle class author writing about a white a white. Middle class voice novel, um, where the main character is marginalised, but in some way that allows them to still be (laughs) white middle class. (laughs) And um, it seems to me that as well as like people just getting the opportunities to be sort of published, it's also about um, making space for them to be reviewed, making space for them to have marketing pushes, making space for when we do festivals not to just have like one diversity panel and then have all the uh writers of color on that and then when we go and have detective fiction no then like you we've got because what i'm very aware of is a is that i just get billed as like author and i'm allowed to i get booked for being literary fiction i get booked for doing genre i get like Mm. i they people sort of allow me to move because i'm like perceived by a lot of people who do literary festivals and a lot of people who do like literary journalism as like the default. I'm like when you like load up like FIFA and there's just like a generic footballer before you put them through character creation, right? Like, like I'm, I'm like the default. And then there's really good uh, analogy. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, well, it's just, it just is crazy to me that I still get, because I, I, I think you're right. It is getting better, but it's getting better slowly. When it doesn't need to get better slowly, it could get better quickly. And while it's not getting better, there are human beings out there right who aren't having their stories valued and listened to. And we're we're losing shit because we're not hearing them. And like, why did it have to? Why do we have? Why do people have to get used to it? Mm. Why can't you just fucking do it now? There's no reason. There's no reason. It's not. We don't have to wait. And there's and you know my. Pitch to the publishing industry would be there's fucking money to be made as well because there's whole new audiences who are going to buy that who go oh i didn't know that you were going to write books for me okay great i'm gonna take my money
1: yeah there's i didn't realize until the 392 has been released i mean yeah getting published you know it it, i've sort of told you the story of getting published about it but um, there's so much more work to be done after it's been published. <laughs> you talk about reviews, and I've, something I forgot to mention getting festival slots. These things are really, really hard. And it is sort of, we need yeah, more people involved in that um, because it's so hard to, to get your voice heard even after you've published the book you know it's really hard to get and and, and you can slots, get in, yeah and you yeah.
0: can get invited to stuff and then it's not promoted and no one turns up to your event <laughs> yes. and like that's I, I understand like from a festival bookers point of view that's hard and there's some things you can do as a programmer but you can't always control what people go to in the program but i think it is how are you how are you finding it in the because this would be interesting to the audience as well um you know how are you? Cause it's often taught it's a vulnerable time now and it's okay. But like, I know I feel a big pressure with my book out a week and a half to go. Like I'm really happy with everything. Everything's going great. I can't believe the buzz around my book. And that is like not true in lots of ways. There's been some nice things. There's been some radio silence and stuff, some stuff as well, some stuff I haven't been. So how are you feeling about the book? Now, I mean, I've seen it out on the shelves in in Norwich and in London, but um, what's you, my perception of this, of your book, is that it's going really well, but then I may have been noticing it as it, everywhere because I've been We're looking really for it. Working really hard know?
1: behind the scenes to make sure that it looks like... No, do you know what? To be honest, um, yeah, I actually do think it has it, it's going really well. We sold out of the first print run um, before or the day of the launch. Holy shit, that's really good. <laughs> yeah, um, but of course I have to be quite sensible and because it is an indie press and i have to think about the, the very um small number of us working behind the scenes to try and get this in store to try and get the you know the reviews and the festival slots so yeah of course um it's, it's never going to be easy and there's a lot of hard work involved um but i am really really trying to enjoy um a lot more the feeling of having my book out there. And for the most part, I it know. looks beautiful as well. Yeah. By the way, haven't they done a fucking amazing job? The design yeah, of this is gorgeous, fantastic. It really stands out. Like if you don't drop, it's a three nine two. That's you what. Yeah, 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 I, I it really see really it immediately. And it's that a great. Out with cover. Your book, by the way. I mean, it's not, not a love in here. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a little bit, but yeah. that's okay. We're allowed. We're both feeling. We're in a
0: vulnerable state Absolutely. with our books just yeah. out, right? We need a bit of positivity. Yeah, but
1: saying that, I do feel like. Oh, I wish I wanted to get into more people's hands. I mean if it was up to me I would like give out free copies across across London across Norwich because I really want more people to read it and obviously that's it's obviously quite hard to to get it into everybody's hand. But um no yeah, so far so good. Good reviews on on on, on Goodreads and and uh, Amazon and not just from my friends. So that always that always helps. Um and yeah, I've got a few things lined up. I've obviously got the I have um a launch another launch event. I have um, the Stoke Newington Literary Festival. I'll be doing a few panels there. Oh, that it's a cool festival, man. Yeah, I've been I've been there as a spectator before, so it been been because obviously growing up in Hackney, so it'd be nice to to be on the other side. Um, yeah. That'd be really really cool. And yeah, a few festivals, WOMAD and. Uh, prima donna fest which i'm really looking forward to because that's quite a new thing that kit the and team are, have created so yeah a few things uh, lined up a few possibilities to, to sell the book a bit more um and I, I really don't want the uh you know book is littered with topical references i don't want it to become too dated too quickly so yeah. more people read it this year It'd be fantastic <laughs> um but yeah no I, I it is a it's a dream come true um and to do it to do it you know i was, I was 27 just i'm 28 now but it came out when i was 27 and i you know i pinched myself to to say that i've got this 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 book out and it, you know it's about just over 50,000 words now so it's not an epic um but you
0: know what so this is the funny thing like i was this is like the most lovely thing that i've ever been able to say in my life but i was at dinner with some publishing people last week no it was my book launch that's why there was a bunch (laughs) of people there i don't do it generally but anyway so there and there was like about Five publishing people, and I got to ask the question during a conversation. I was like, they were talking about book sizes and people publishing these huge monstrosities and binding, falling apart and stuff. (laughs) And I had a guess. I I had a figure in my mind, but I said to them, oh, what do you think, like, the perfect book sizes at the moment? And they all said, oh, about 60,000 words. I'd love Mm. to see a book about 60,000 words. I mean, I thought that's what they were going to say. So, like, fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 words at the moment, like... The publishing industry loves this book. I mean, I just read Inuit Ellams's, uh, oh, yes, uh Half God of Rainfall. Yes, 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 and yep. that's, again, like a nice short book. And it's frigging great. And I was just like, it's this prompt business. Like, it kind of gets in, does what it wants to do, yeah. and doesn't waste your time. So I think the time for those, like, that size novel is, Absolutely. is, we live,
1: is here. We're living in a generation where, you know, the uh, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter generation, which is all very... Terse terse and piffy and we haven't got time as I mu- haven't got uh, as much time as we used to have before. I'm not saying that with any authority, but um and I feel like yeah, a book like this or Inuit Elms which is fantastic and even Andrew Cohen's new one, your fault, is relatively short as yeah. well. Um so yeah, I, I think it's I mean that was deliberate. Absolutely deliberate, you know. If you I want you to read this on the bus, I want you to read this on the train, I want you to read this.
0: I'm I'm free and jealous, man. I tell hey, you what, man. I really, really, really wanna write I'd love to write a short book. And I think it takes, you know, that's the classic, the old lady who apologised that she would have written a shorter letter, but she didn't have the time. It takes <laughs> discipline, and it takes thinking about stuff to yeah. be able to actually tell a story, get in, get out. It's easy to write. Like, a first draft of The Ice House was a yeah. quarter of a million words.
1: I remember you saying this. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: and it's like, that's... I mean it's hard work but that is easier than writing half the length. That was that was the difficult bit. It's like going how am I going to tell this story without just you know stretching my arms and it's still a long book. But to be able to tell a story quickly without wasting people's time, I think it takes real skill. And actually that brings me on to my final thing I wanted to ask you about which is and I know we've kind of like t- touched on this all the way through the conversation. By the way, thank you so much. I really appreciate your coming oh, on the thank show. You for I feel like me. I'm I really enjoyed it. It's really, you. really really so much stuff it's just absolutely fascinating to me and I feel like I'm learning so much I was wondering if you could talk to any of the listeners about have you got any sort of like tips that have been working for you as you write some things you've learned along the way some craft tips or some suggestions or whatever something that people who are working on their own book could um Perhaps take away and use when they have to. You know, after listening to this, they've now got to go back to the desk and they've got to do exactly what you're going to do. You know, the this week and what I'm going to do, which is sit in front of that laptop and try and make a story happen. What stuff? When it's going well for you, what stuff are are you doing, and what stuff has proved fruitful for you?
1: Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, I'm going to start by saying, you know, perhaps don't go back to your desk straight away. I mean, for instance, we're recording this on a lovely sunny day. And I would go for a walk. I really would. And I mean, I'm awful with walks, by the way. Unless there's a pub at the end, I don't really tend to go for walks. <laughs> but if that means, maybe maybe go to the pub. Yeah, that's good yeah. um, But yeah, go for a walk. Enjoy this. I mean, five, ten minutes. Go to the park. Um, and listen to people around you. You know, listen to the conversations. Be a nosy parker. Um, and that's basically how I wrote 392, to be honest. I was listening to conversations I heard on the bus and train and, and wrote them down. Um, so yeah, I, I really would really suggest that. Don't let writing consume you. Um, you know, I want you to. That sounds really preachy here. I want you to. Um, no, do, no, there are people people, people, aren't, people understand. I, I think
0: you know, like I'm sure you're charismatic enough that there'll be some people who will find all your words irresistible. <laughs> but for everyone else, like, we understand that this is this is coming from a, a honest yeah, place, absolutely. and I, I think yeah. you know. But you please, please, yeah, and the, people need to hear it as well. You know what? Like a lot of people don't have the. They don't have anyone taking like an active interest in
1: their writing. Mm. I think it's I think it's I think it's lovely. Oh, like good, it will be taken good. in the spirit it's intended. Yeah. Well, like I like I said before, I, I felt I was enjoying my writing process more when I was a teacher. I'm not saying you should, you know, get another job or anything like that, but perhaps um occupy yourselves with something that you really enjoy as well as writing, you know, so that you can have that balance. So whether that be <laughs> pottery. Hmm. Yeah, whether that be pottery or running or whatever, painting, um, and then do the writing as well on the side. And also don't force yourself to write, for me, you know, oh, I've got to write 2,000 words today, or I've got to write 1,500 words, or whatever. You know, don't 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 pressure yourself like that. Try and enjoy it as much as you can, because, you know, writing is, is hugely fantastic. And the rewards can be incredibly rewarding. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, like, I've, you know, the release of the 392, as I said, is undoubtedly a dream come true. Um, so, yeah, you know just just take your time enjoy life don't get consumed by it go for a walk listen as much as you can um, to, to, to what's around you and then yeah when, when ready go and go and write and it doesn't have to be on your on your Mac or your or your laptop or your computer you know I have my iPhone with me everywhere I go and I write down things I hear on my iPhone and a lot of them are nonsensical just ramblings and and things shopping lists <laughs> start it get it down um, or you know your notebook just write down anything these all count as words you know they all count it might not have a word count on your on your notepad but these are words that you can perhaps use for your i'll tell notebook. you what like you are honestly that
0: is such a good piece of advice and it echoes what i've heard like professor richard wiseman who i had a couple of weeks ago talked about having an idea when he was in an airport and he ran into the bookshop and the only thing he could find was he got a copy of um the da vinci code oh, he yes. bought it and he just wrote he wrote an entire plan for a book on the white pages at the back of it because that's, yeah. and he said he's got pockets full of um, receipts yes. and things like that. I think that thing of how giving people permission to write in like the notes on your phone, write on a piece of paper, write and stuff that wasn't meant to be written on. Once you get into that habit, mm. you will catch stuff. Absolutely. That you know Gareth L. Powell um, talked about how he <laughs> he he wrote he got pub his he had his publisher sort of like asking if he had any other ideas for a book. And he had just written down on, in his notebook, the phrase Akak macaque <laughs> And he was like, Akak macaque is about, it's about a flying m- monkey. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, great. And, and the book is frigging good. Amazing. And it's great. It's like a world war two flying ace. Who's also a chimp. It's really That's funny. So cool. Um, but you will make your... I think you are right, and you will make your own luck by... So, l- so much of that will be nonsense, but then yeah. the barrier to writing falls down because it's not intimidating to write because I write crap all the time, right? So we're, it's fine, right? One of these out of 100 might be a genius idea, but I'm Absolutely. going to write 99 that are bad and that's fine.
1: Yeah, just keep writing. Keep writing. It's
0: such... I, I think that is amazing wisdom and i hope that you uh hope you treat yourself with that level of kindness <laughs> as well when you're going back to your thing cuz it sounds listen like you're me, on ashley. the right track actually
1: listen to ashley
0: well th- yeah exactly like this <laughs> is the advice that you i think you have your own wisdom you have we have often the kind of like we can diagnose and kind of like cure all the things with our own writing if we just listen to our inner wisdom. And I think your inner wisdom is spot on. And thank you so much for coming on the show. No, really, I really, really appreciate thank you. it. Thank you. Um, everyone who's listening, um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to uh the 392. I'll also put a, a link um to uh cano's uh Elements of Style as well. I think uh, again, that is a
1: if Ex- you got exercises of style, e-
0: is it yeah, exercises yeah, like, yeah, in style? Yeah,
1: I really recommend, lovely, it's great. Um,
0: book. It's exercises in style. If I, I mean, if you could get yourself those two books to read side by side, oh, my goodness, what a combination. yeah, <laughs> I know. Like I think, really, really, genuinely think you will fill notebooks in the months to come afterwards it'd be so inspiring so um I'll put those two there um everyone oh and by the way everyone who's listening thank you very very much for all your lovely emails and stuff it's been lovely to hear from you uh take care and um I hope you have a wonderful writing week